Okay, so we are continuing our discussion on the spiritual disciplines. Who remembers the goal, the purpose of the spiritual disciplines? That was way back five, six weeks ago. What was the goal and purpose of the spiritual disciplines? Why do we engage in spiritual disciplines? Yes, good memory, Owen. Growing in godliness, it's for the purpose of growing in Christ-likeness, to be more like Christ. God has asked, told us we should be uh, sanctified, we should be growing in the image of Christ, and the spiritual disciplines are the means by which we do this. And we've talked about quite a few of them already. We talked about hearing the word, reading the word, memorizing, meditating, praying, fasting, serving. We've talked about spiritual gifts. And now we're going to look at the issue of stewardship. Stewardship. Before we get into stewardship, I'm going to focus in on one area of stewardship. We need to have a basic understanding of what do we mean when we talk about stewardship. What is that really referring to? What are we discussing? When we say stewardship, what does that mean? It refers to the careful use control, and management of the possessions of another that have been entrusted to someone. Someone gives you something that's theirs, and they say, hey, would you take care of this for me? Or in seminary, they would say, hey, can I borrow this book? And if you know anything about nerds, you don't mess up our books. And so we entrust that to you, and we say, we're entrusting this to you. You have a stewardship now. You are to protect this book and carefully manage and care for it. That's what a stewardship is. In the Bible, stewards were servants in charge of managing the household affairs and keeping order in the family. They were usually slaves. And I think this is a wonderful tie into last week's discussion when we talked about service being the work of a slave. And we are all, according to the New Testament, slaves of Christ. We are slaves of God. Stewardship is something we are required to be doing. It's part of the Christian life. One writer said, The steward was a household servant who managed the household affairs for the head of the family. Managing the family involved delegation, discipline, discouragement, and most important, accountability to the head of the household. The slave was given these tasks and responsibilities. He was oftentimes responsible for caring for the finances, managing the work. There would be one head guy who would manage all the work in the house and the estate. And he was accountable to his master for how he managed the affairs and the business of his master. And if he didn't do his job well, there were going to be consequences. So here's kind of the logic of stewardship for the Christian, for the believer. God owns everything. Everything you have belongs to him. Your life, your family, your possessions, your wealth, your time, your talents, your gifts, the air that you breathe, all of it belongs to God. Everything belongs to him, and you are called to manage his possessions in a way that glorifies him. Everything that you have belongs to him, and he has given it to you, not so that you can use it for your ends, but so that you can glorify him with it. 
And that includes everything right down to your very life. It is a stewardship that you have been given and you have been called to manage and care for it in a way that pleases and glorifies God. And you will be accountable to God for how you do this or how you fail to do this. You will stand before God, I will stand before God, and he will judge us on the basis of whether or not we have been good stewards of what God has given to us. There are some biblical examples of stewardship. The first one is out of Genesis 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Whose garden was it? It was God's garden. And the man was there to care for, tend, that garden and do it in a way that is pleasing and glorifying to God. And he would be held accountable for how he managed the garden. There's another example of this in uh, Genesis, Genesis 39, the story of Joseph, 39 verse, thir- uh, verse 4, and he, Potiphar, made him, Joseph, overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. He was made an overseer. The term actually refers to a steward. This sense of the word includes the idea of trusting one to be responsible for whatever is given into one's care. And Moses writes that Joseph received responsibility for everything that Potiphar owned. And he actually says it three times in three verses. Verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. He repeats over and over again. Joseph was responsible for everything, and Potiphar worried about nothing but what he personally ate. Joseph managed and cared for everything else. This same idea to be an overseer is used again in Psalm 31, verse 5. The psalmist speaking to God. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit to your care. For the New Testament believer... You are called to be a steward. You are called to be an overseer. 1 Peter 4, verse 10, he says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Last week we talked about every person has received a gift. A few weeks ago, pastor preached on spiritual gifts. Every single person has been given a gift by God. And you are to be a steward of that gift. You are to be a good manager and to use that gift in a way that glorifies God. And he refers to it as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Grace was given to you. The gifts were given to you, not so that you can dig a hole and bury them, but so that you could use them for his glory. This term in the New Testament for stewards refers to a manager of a household or one who is entrusted with management in connection with transcendent matters. Same idea from the Old Testament. The idea of stewardship didn't change in between the two Testaments. It's the same idea. You have been called to be a steward of what God has given you. 1 Corinthians uh, 9, Paul refers to his own ministry of preaching and teaching the gospel. He says, for I do... For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. It's a ministry that he has been given. And that ministry was not his. 
it belongs to God. The task of preaching the gospel was given to him, and as a steward, as an overseer of this ministry, he was going to do it faithfully. Colossians 1, he told the church of Colossae the same thing. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefits that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. God has given him this stewardship. He has given him this ministry. And now Paul sees himself as being accountable to God for how he manages and cares for and conducts his ministry. 1 Corinthians 4.2 In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. It's interesting how people, you'll hear someone say, well, why didn't God give me that gift? Why doesn't God give me more of this, more money here, or more resources here, or more ability here? And the obvious answer to that question is, are you even being faithful with what he has given you? Are you using what you currently have to his glory? Are you being faithful with what he has given? There's a great illustration of stewardship in the New Testament. I want to take you to it. It's in Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. And I'm really just going to read the, the, the parable because it, it's a wonderful illustration of what stewardship is and the accountability that we have toward God in stewardship. It's the parable of the talents. And to be sure, talents in that day were money. He was referring to money here. Starting in verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. There's the idea of stewardship. To one he gave the talent, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But the one who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the house of those slaves came and settled his accounts with them. The one who received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you have entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me, so I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. It's a great picture of stewardship. The issue here is not what he received. The issue here is not how much he received. The issue here is what he did with what he had. 
he went out and dug a hole. You know, he probably spent as much time digging the hole as it would have taken for him to put it in the bank. Instead of using it, he said, well, I don't want to take any risk. I'm just going to stick it in a hole. And his master came back and said, you're lazy. You're worthless. You did nothing with it. You could have done something with that one, and you did nothing with it. He was held accountable for how he managed what God had given. The day will come when you and I stand before God, and we will be judged for how we managed everything he has given. From our families, to our wealth, our possessions, to the talents and skills that you have, all of them, you will be judged for how you manage them. And think about it today. If that day was right now, if that day was later, right after this service, what would he say to you based on how you've managed what you have so far? Would he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or would he say, wicked, lazy slave? Now, there's many different areas of stewardship that we can talk about. We can talk about your stewardship of money, your stewardship of your family, stewardship over gifts. And those are all important and necessary conversations. But I want to focus in on one that really, I think, applies most to our discussion of spiritual disciplines. It's the number one excuse why people don't engage in the spiritual disciplines. The number one excuse people don't spend time in prayer, they don't read their Bibles, they don't work on memorization. What's the number one excuse? I don't have time. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about being a steward of time. Now to have this discussion, I I first want to go into the Bible and just get a biblical understanding of the time that you have. And I want to begin in Ecclesiastes 3. He says, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under the sun. Everything that happens is ordained of God, and everything that happens happens precisely when God said it should happen. All the events and the chaos in life, all of those are happening happening at the exact time God decreed that they should happen. And that should be a comfort to you because when it feels like the world is overwhelming you, when all the circumstances around you seem like it's too much, you can stop and say, no, these are all happening exactly at this time because this is exactly what God wanted to happen. And it's for my eternal good. It's to sanctify me. Everything that happens, happens at an appointed time. In Acts 17, verse 26, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. The time nations rise and fall is set and determined by God. He determined when the United States showed up, And he will determine, he has already determined when the United States will disappear. The rise and the fall of nations is determined by God's timing. He has already appointed that time. But it's not just big, grand things that happen in the world that God appoints. He even appoints the time of little things. 
Ecclesiastes 3, verse 2. A time to give birth. You were born into this world precisely when God wanted you to. Have you ever thought, man, I wish I was in a different century? I'm in the wrong century. I should have been born at, I don't know, whatever. But no, you were born exactly when God had determined it. It's not just you were born in the right century. You were born in the right year, in the right month, on the right day, in the right hour, at the right minute, at the right second, precisely when he determined you should. Even if you were a preemie, perfect timing. Psalm 139, verse 16. You have seen, uh, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. All of my days were ordained by God long before I ever showed up. The time of my birth was ordained of God. How long I would live was ordained of God. He determined it and set it out, and it is going to happen exactly the way he planned it. Ecclesiastes 3.2 continues. He says, a time to give birth and a time to die. Day of your birth is set in stone, and the day of your death is also set in stone. You cannot extend your life. You cannot shorten your life. You have a set number of days. You don't know the day of your death. You don't know the day your time ends. But it will come. It will end. Psalm 39, verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. He's recognizing I don't have a lot of time left. But God knows exactly how much time I have. Or Job 14. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. You have a set number of days on this planet. You have a set number of days to be a steward of God, of what God has given you, to use what God has given you. Because you can't change the number of your days. You can't add the number of days to your life. You can't add a few moments to your life. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. You can't add to his plan. You can't improve upon it. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Why are you worrying? Worrying's not going to add a moment to your life. You and I have a set number of days. You don't get any more when it's over. The days that are past are never going to come back. The time that you've missed, you're never going to get it back. God has determined the day of your death, and it is approaching rapidly. Time is precious. You don't have time to waste because you only have so much. And once it's gone, you can't get it back. It is not replaceable. Time is precious. Jonathan Edwards says, because when it is past, it cannot be recovered. Once you lose it, it's gone. 
never to be regained. Thomas, uh, Jonathan Edwards said, There are many things which men possess, which, if they part with, they can obtain them again. If a man has parted with something which he had, not knowing the worth of it or the need he should have of it, he often can regain it at least with pains and cost. If I lost my little clicker here, I can go search for it and maybe find it. Or I can go out and pay for a new one. I can get it back. If you lose money, you can go out and earn some more. But it is not so with time. When once that is gone, it is gone forever. No pains, no cost will recover it. Though we repent ever so much that we let it pass and did not improve it when we had it, it will be to no purpose. Every part of it is offered to us that we may choose whether we make it our own or not. You have been given time, and you have to make a decision. Am I going to use this for the glory of God? Am I going to make the most of this time for his glory, or am I going to waste it? Jonathan Edwards said, but if we refuse, it is immediately taken away and never offered more. If you don't make use of the time that you have today, it's going to pass, and you're never going to get it back. It's gone for good. Donald Whitney. Many things can be lost, but then regained. Many a man has declared bankruptcy only to amass an even greater fortune later. Time is different. Once gone, it is gone forever and never and can never be regained. If you could galvanize every person on earth into the purpose of regaining time, the entire world's efforts, wealth, and technology could not bring back one moment. It's just gone. Once you lose it, it's just gone. There's nothing you can do about it. Time is precious because you can't replace it. Time is precious because a happy or miserable eternity depends on the good or ill improvement of it. Jonathan Edwards is not denying salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But he is recognizing, Hebrews says, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. He is recognizing in 1 John, he says, if you have this hope in you, you will purify yourself. Jesus said, strive to enter in. You are called to be growing in grace and growing in Christ-likeness, and that requires that you invest time. Men are wont to set the highest value on those things upon which they are sensible, that their interest chiefly depends, and this renders them so exceedingly precious because our eternal welfare depends on the improvement of it. Indeed, our welfare in this world depends on its improvement, but it is above all things precious as our state through eternity depends upon it. One day you will step into eternity, and there are people right now in Hades who are suffering, going, man, I wish I would have used my time in a different way. Instead of chasing sin and instead of chasing things of the world, I should have been chasing after God. I should have been seeking after him. No one laying on their deathbed says, man, I wish I could just go commit one more sin. But a lot of Christians lay on their deathbed and say, I wish I would have spent more time in the word. I wish I would have prayed more. I wish I would have been more fervent in my devotions. Because your eternity depends on on your use of those.
Okay. So much wasted time. It's good. Time is precious because time is short, which is another thing that renders it very precious. No matter how much time you have, it's still a really short period of time. It is but a moment to eternity. Time is so short, and the work which we have to do is so great that we have none of it to spare. The which we have to do to prepare for eternity must be done in time, or it can never be done, and is found to be a work of great difficulty and labor, and therefore that for which time is more requisite. You have a lot to get done. You have a lot of work to do. You have a long way to go in your walk and in growing in Christ-likeness. You don't have time to spare. You don't have a moment to waste. Donald Whitney said, when you think of an, an entire decade as only 120 months, a great chunk of life suddenly seems short. So regardless of how much time remains for you to develop more Christ-likeness, it really isn't much. Use it well. It seems like just yesterday I was 15. Now I'm pushing 40. And I'm sure most of you can look at your life and look back and say, it seems like just yesterday I was this big. And I'm not that big anymore. And it went by in a snap. And guess what? The next 20, 30 years of your life are going to go by just as quick. And before you know it, it's going to be gone. Time is precious because we are uncertain of its continuance. Your time is short. Your time will end. Here's the problem. We don't know when. Carl said, the older you get, the quicker it goes. Jonathan Edwards, if a man had but a little provision laid up for a journey or a voyage, and at the same time knew that if his provision should tail or fail, he must perish by the way. If you knew you were going on a journey and the only thing that would keep you alive is what you brought with you, how careful would you be in packing your bags? If you knew your failure in packing would cost your life, how much effort would you put into it? Um, how much more would many men prize their time if they knew they had but a few months or a few days more to live? If you knew the day of your death was Wednesday of this coming week. You are going to die at noon this Wednesday. I promise you, you would not spend the rest of the day like you did yesterday. I know I wouldn't. It would drastically change the way we live if we actually considered the reality that life ends without notice. People come and go. Proverbs 27, verse 1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Jesus said, you shouldn't say, I will do this tomorrow. You, will say, you should say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this tomorrow. If the Lord continues to give me breath, I'll do it tomorrow. 
thousands entered eternity today, including many much younger than you, who just hours ago had no idea that today was their last day. Had they known that, their use of time would have become far more important to them. They got up that morning, they tied their shoes, they combed their hair, they brushed their teeth, they ate their breakfast, and when they left the house, they expected to return that evening. Just like we all did this morning. Time is precious because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. The world we live in makes it difficult to use time wisely, especially for purposes of biblical spirituality and godliness. In fact, our days are days of active evil. There's plenty in this world right now that wants to distract you, wants to pull you away from the spiritual disciplines, wants to entice you to go after and do something else. I don't need to go pray right now. What I really need to do is go over here and there are so many things that try to pull us away from our devotion to God and devotion to Christ. And we have to recognize we can't allow that to happen. Great thieves of time serve as minions of the world, the flesh and the devil. They may range in form from high-tech, socially acceptable preoccupations to simple idle talk or ungoverned thoughts. There's a million different ways you can waste your time. All of them are going to be useless to you. Time is precious because death is certain. Everyone in this room is going to die. We already talked about not knowing when it's going to happen. We're all going to die. It is common to man. It is appointed on a man once to die. It's going to happen. And when lying on your deathbed... Will you regret how you spent the time God has given? There are some people in history who have laid on their deathbed and looked back and said, I really wish I had some more time. Voltaire, the skeptic, and I think he was an atheist, said to his doctor on his deathbed, I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of my life. He spent a lifetime working to obtain his wealth. And he said, look, I'll give you half of all that my life has been if you would just give me six more months. It was a futile request because the doctor couldn't extend his time. But he recognized at the end of his life that his time was valuable and he had wasted a whole bunch of it. Or consider Thomas Hobbes, the English skeptic, who said, if I had the whole world, I would give it to live one day. Just give me one more day. 24 hours is all I want. But he couldn't even get that. Proverbs 5, verse 11, describes regret. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. 
laying on their deathbed with nothing but regret. Don Whitney said, if as this man you suddenly realize you had no more time, would you likewise regret how you've spent your time in the past and present? If you look back on the last week, how much time have you wasted? How much time have you lost to silliness and nonsense? Time is precious because it is so easily wasted. It's so easy to waste our time. You know, the book of Proverbs gives its strongest critique to the fool. But the one who gets the second strongest critique is the lazy man, the sloth, the sluggard. Here's what Proverbs says about the person who wastes time. The sluggard says, there is a line in the road. A line is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard doesn't want to get out of bed to go to work. And he'll find any excuse not to have to do it. Well, I can't go to work today. Well, because the highways are dangerous. And if I go on the highways, I might die. So I'm not going to go to work. And they make all sorts of excuses to why they can't do something. Or when you tell the sluggard you should spend your time pursuing godliness, you should spend your time in the Word of God, you spend your time in prayer, meditation, memorizing Scripture. And I say, well, yeah, but if I did that, then my favorite YouTube creator is going to upload a video and I'm going to miss it. I'm not going to be able to be the first one to write first in the comment section. Or something's going to post on Fox News or the Drudge Report and I'm going to miss that. Or something on social media is going to happen and I'm not going to be able to see it. And they value all those meaningless things and they waste away their time. And instead of going and praying and pursuing Christ, they go sit on the couch. Proverbs 24, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come upon you as a robber and your want like an armed man. Nobody loses time by the hour. You don't lose time by the day or the week. You lose time in the smallest increments. You lose time by the second. You waste it by the second. Here's what I mean by that. When I decide I'm going to go waste some time, I never say I'm going to go waste a whole day. I never say I'm going to waste a whole week. It's always, oh, it's just going to be a moment or two. I'm just going to stop and not do what I know I should be doing because it's just going to be for a few moments. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to focus on this. I'm just going to spend a few moments on social media, just a few moments watching this TV show or hitting up Netflix or any other thing. It was only supposed to be for a few moments. And be sure, there is a place for recreation. And you say, well, I'm just going to spend those few moments. And then the next thing you know, you look at the clock. And it's been a few hours. And you haven't done anything. You haven't accomplished anything. You've just wasted hours. And when we do that, we miss out on major opportunities opportunities we'll never get back. And that's what this proverb is saying. 
a little bit of sleep, a little bit of slumber, and those opportunities are now gone. You have opportunities now to pursue Christ that you won't have in the future. You have opportunities right now to grow in godliness and in sanctification that you are not going to get back. They are not going to come again. And if you pass them up, if you say, I'm not going to do it now, I'll do it later, just think about everything that we talked about so far, no, you're not going to do them later. Because you're not going to get the time back and you're not going to get the opportunity back. It's gone. Donald Whitney said, the sluggard never has time for the things that really matter, especially things that require discipline. And before he realizes it, his time and opportunities are gone. The person who wastes their time, who is flippant about how they use their time, never has time to go pray. They never have time to be in the Word. They never have time to pursue Christ because they waste it all. Here's a little thought experiment. Divide your life into parts of three. So divide a day up. A day is 24 hours. On average, most people sleep eight hours. Most people work eight hours per day. Here's a question. What do you do with the other eight? A lot of people go to work and they think the eight hours at work, that's my day. They wake up, they go to work, day's over. And they give no thought to what happens next. And the rest of the eight hours are wasted. Gone. Okay, that's one day. Let's divide it over a lifetime. Let's say you live 60 years. That means you sleep 20. You work 20. What do you do with the other 20? Take your age, divide by three. Do you know what you've been doing with those hours? Do you know what's happened with them? Or have they just been lost? Take the rest of your life. Divide it by three. What are you going to do with those hours? How are you going to spend your time? How are you going to be a good steward of what God has given you? Yes, sir. Horace was saying that someone he worked with said that time management is the most difficult thing to do in life, and he's absolutely right. There's no one in this room who does this perfectly. There's no one in this room who cannot grow in this area and cannot do better. We all look back and go, man, I've wasted some time. And we don't want to do that in the future. This isn't easy. So here's a question. What if you spent your money the way you spend your time? Would you have any left? If you were as careless with your money as some people are with their time. Time management begins with being intentional. If you want to manage your time, you have to look at it the same way you look at your money. 
if you want to control your money, you get a budget. You put yourself on a budget. You give every dollar a name, and you decide, and you make a decision on how every dollar is going to be spent. And then when someone asks you what you spend your money on, you can tell them. But if you don't have a budget for your money, mm, who knows where it went? The money came in, the money went out, only the names have changed. And we have no idea what happened. And that's the same is true with our time. If we don't tell our time what we're going to do in it, if we don't assign the time a job or a task, we're not going to do anything with it. It's just going to go away. Without a schedule, you have no idea where your time is going. You have no clue, and neither do I. You cannot know where your time is going. Cal Newport wrote a book called Deep Work. It's not a Christian book, but I think it's a fantastic book on this topic. And he gave some information here that I think is relevant, that I think is important. They did a study in the UK of how, how much time 24 to 34 year, 25 to 34 year olds spend watching television every week. And they just asked them, how much time did you spend watching television last week? Here's what he said. The 25 to 34 year olds taking the survey estimated that they spend somewhere between 15 and 16 hours per week watching TV. This sounds like a lot, but it's actually a significant understatement. So they don't know how much time they're actually spending watching television. They're just assuming it's somewhere between 15 and 16 hours, but they really don't know. So the people who did the survey also went to another company that actually puts monitors on televisions to find out how much time people are watching television. And they got actual data on how much time this group of people is watching television. Here's what they found. The 25 to 34-year-olds who thought they watched 15 hours a week, it turns out watch more like 28 hours a week. One out of seven days spent watching television and they didn't even know it. They lost track of 13 hours of their week. Had no clue where it went. And before we look at them and say, naughty, naughty, we do the same thing. We lose time all the time because we do not manage it and we do not tell our time what we are going to do in it. That's 13 to 15 hours a week. How much of the Bible could you read in 13 hours? Or Cal Newport gave this little statistic. A survey of the National Sleep Foundation revealed that Americans think they're sleeping on average somewhere around seven hours a night. The American Time Use Survey, which has people actually measure their sleep, corrected this number to 8.6. They don't know how much time they're spending watching television. They have no idea how much time they spend sleeping. Oh, but sure, they know how much time they're working, right? Because, I mean, that's tracked. Mm, not exactly. Another study found that people who claim to work 60 to 64 hours per week were actually averaging more like 44 hours per week while those claiming to work more than 75 hours were actually working less than 55. And that's because when we go to work, we don't actually always work. You fritter away time there too, and you lose time. Without a schedule, without some kind of budget, you have no idea where your time is. 
you have no idea how much time you're spending on certain activities. That's what I just said. These examples underscore an important point. We spend much of our day on autopilot, not giving much thought to what we're doing with our time. All right. I want to give you a basic, easy-to-follow way to do a schedule. And I know for some of you this is going to be, like, really simple. But this is just something very basic, very easy, that I have found to be helpful. Okay? Take a regular notebook, spiral notebook, okay, with loose-leaf notebook paper in it. Okay? Put the date on the top and then draw a line down the center. And on the left margin, you're going to write times, and you're going to do it in 30-block increments. And you're going to put the entire day on the left margin. Now, I know I don't have the full day there, but I'm worried about people in the back being able to see, and I don't know if you guys can even read that back there. Okay, so you're going to do the whole day in 30-block increments, and you're not going to leave any part of the day out. And you're going to start with your wake-up. You're going to plan what time you're waking up in the morning. Because that's going to tell you what time you need to go to bed at night. And if you're planning to wake up at 5, probably not a good idea to go to bed at 3. Okay? But you do this at night the day before. So before you go to bed, you sit down and you say, today's Sunday, tomorrow's Monday, August 3rd. You put your date up there and you say, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to sleep in 8 a.m. And I did this schedule kind of like I was in seminary still because we all have different schedules and now my schedule's all different. Okay, so I wake up at 8, I do my hygiene, I get ready for the day. Plan that too. Then I'm going to have my devotions. It's intentional. I'm planning, I'm setting aside time for something that matters. When you take your money, you set aside money to give, right? You need to set aside some time to give to the Lord. At 9.30, I'm going to have class. That's going to go until 11. After that, I know I have a research paper I have to do, so I'm going to go spend some time in the library. And I'm going to go do research in the library. And then we're going to have lunch. Yes, schedule a meal for yourself. Go back to class. After class, I'm going to go translate because that's what we do in seminary. <laughs> and then I'm going to go through the rest of my day. I'm just going to plan out my day all the way through until bed. We'll come back to the 9.30 slot. Or the, what is that? Yeah, the 9.30 slot. And I'm going to plan what time I'm going to bed. Now, you notice we're only using that side of the paper. What do we do on the right side? As you go through your day, you've made a schedule, and you're going through your day, and then, you know, maybe I got to class, and the professor reminds me of something I forgot. On this side, you write out the things you need to remember. I get to class, and he's like, oh, by the way, you have a vocab quiz, your Greek vocab quiz next Tuesday. I forgot. I'm going to put that right there. I'm going to write it down so I have it with me, and I know Okay, I need to do that. Turn in a reading report. I did the reading. I might as well get credit for it. Now, these are assignments for school. This could be anything. Just take your life and fill it in. 
This could be as simple as someone comes to you and says, hey, John is sick. Can you pray for him? Well, if I don't write it down, I'm probably going to forget it. So I'm going to write it over here on the things to remember. Now, what are we going to do with this 930 slot? I left that blank for a reason. That's a time that you need to come back and review your schedule. At the end of the day, you're going to come back and you're going to review everything you've done. And then you're going to make a new schedule. So you're going to start a new page and everything that's over here on the right side of your page, guess what you're going to do? You're going to schedule it for the next day. So when you go to bed, you know, one, you're not forgetting anything. And two, everything you need to do is on your schedule and it's going to get done tomorrow. Do these have to be done tomorrow? No, you can schedule them later if you want. You just don't forget them. Now, do this in pencil. You're not writing the Ten Commandments, okay? This is not etched in stone. First time I tried to do a schedule, I put it on a computer and I printed it out. It's like trying to hammer a square peg into a round hole. Okay, life is going to happen. Things are going to change. People are going to interrupt your routine. And you have to be able to adjust. You have to be able to change. This is not a prison. This is a tool. If you use a pencil, you can adjust your schedule as your day changes. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? The other thing you need to do is schedule some break time. Schedule recreation. Uh, I started doing this in seminary, and the first day I did it, I was just so productive, and I was feeling so good about myself, and I just kept adding new stuff, and I did that for like two days. And I was just going for two days straight. Day three, I get home from school, and I've got more stuff I want to do, and I just sit down in the chair, and I pass out. I'm just done. I've got nothing left. You need to schedule some time for recreation. Maybe you're going to watch a movie. Maybe you're just going to go read a good book. Give yourself a break. It's okay to use recreation. God has given it to you for a reason. The issue is not, are you using recreation? The issue is, are you wasting your time in recreation? And are you using recreation to avoid doing what God has asked you to do? Okay, so that's just a basic schedule. There's one other element that I want to introduce you to that is really helpful. It's accountability. So in your notebook, in your spiral, you're going to have a new page. It's the accountability page. And here you're going to write the things you did not get done. If I had planned to translate Psalm 119 eight verses out of there, and I didn't get it done. I'm going to put the date, and then I'm going to put, translate Psalm 119, 9 through 16. I didn't get it done. But I can't stop there. Now I have to write the reason I didn't get it done. So why didn't I get it done? Well, maybe I had a meeting with my professor after class. I wasn't expecting to have the meeting, but he's like, hey, you know, I need to talk to you. And that took longer than I expected, and I lost the time. That's okay. 
So I just put it right there, meeting with professor after class. Couldn't get it done. But what if it wasn't something like that? What if it's something else that's really important, like an intense theological debate on Facebook? What if I decided not to do the translation because I wanted to have a debate on Facebook? Is that okay? It depends. Okay, assuming the translation wasn't due until next week, is it okay? It could be. Is it an absolute no? It's not okay. Is that an absolute? No, this is okay if it's being responsible. We're adults. You can make a decision to change your schedule. And you can even decide, I'm going to change my schedule for something like a Facebook debate. What you cannot do is lie to yourself and say, the reason I didn't get this done is because I didn't have enough time. No, you had the time. You chose to use it in another way. Or maybe you're like me. You wore yourself out. You got home, and you decided to take a nap. That's okay. Just be honest with yourself about why you didn't get it done. I didn't get it done because I chose to take a nap. And after you do this for a few weeks, if you're faithful here and you're honest with yourself, you'll start seeing how often you waste time. Now, if the first one I put up here was, you know, the theological debate on Facebook, if that becomes a recurring pattern, maybe I have a problem. If nap time is becoming an issue, now I can actually track how I'm doing in my scheduling. Does that make sense? Have I lost anybody? Okay. Questions? What about um, something that we want to talk more in our, in our day and time is a multitask? And I, I think it's something like we get too discouraged just because we're laundry and go, you know, mow the lawn and spend time. But multitasking, let's say, it's even at your job, it's, it's the, for me, it's always been one of the most difficult things. It's like, okay, I need to focus on this, or I've got to do that. I can't do both at once. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? There are some jobs that just require a certain level of multitasking. His question is on multitasking. Um, there are some jobs that you just have to be able to multitask. I don't think multitasking, and uh, Cal Newport in the book that I mentioned earlier, he says the same thing. Multitasking is not a really effective way to get work done. Um, there, are, you know, People say, well, you should always have your email box open. Well, that just drains brain power from you because you're now thinking about your email. And the second a new email comes in, you're going to want to go check it, and then it's going to be on your mind because they're going to tell you something, and then you're going to be thinking about that. So generally speaking, multitasking isn't the best way to use your time. Generally. There are some jobs that's just required. If you're going to study scripture, it's probably best that you're not multitasking while doing it. Cut all that other stuff out, turn everything else off, and just focus on what you're doing. But it really depends on your job and how, what your necessity for it, because sometimes it's just mandatory. Any other questions, comments? <laughs> you know, I've been trying to... To, to 
I even said this to Forrest, you know, I've been trying to do this class where I'm not making people feel guilty, and I'm like, I, I don't think that's going to happen today. But, let me, you know, it, the honest reality is this is something we all have to deal with. And so as I was putting this class together, it's very convicting. And so I, I'm saying this as much to you as I am to myself. So, yes. Um, there's a book called Digital Minimalism. And he goes in and he explains. He was mentioning the, the notifications on your phone. And in there he explains the billions and billions of dollars that have been invested in researching how to keep you stuck looking at your phone. Right down to the color of the little red notification on there on the Facebook app that tells you you have a new notification. Or the email it's all designed to trap your attention and get you to keep coming back to it and back to it and back to it. Turning off notifications, putting your phone on do not disturb is a great idea. And don't be beholden to the phone. If someone calls and it's important, they'll leave a message. If you miss the call, that's okay. Especially if you're in the Word, if you're in prayer, don't stop what you're doing to answer the phone. Answer, go check the message right after they're done. Call them back. Turning off notifications is a great idea. Any other comments, questions, suggestions? Anyone have another scheduling method you use? Yes. Bullet journal. Okay, that's on online. Okay, yeah. There, there's probably a whole bunch of websites. She, she uses bullet journal, and trust me, for scheduling, they do have an app for it somewhere. So if you want to use technology and you don't want to be old school and use paper and pencil, that's fine. That's fine. All right, anyone else? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study the word, to consider stewardship of the gifts and the, the possessions that you have given us. We want to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you and be honoring to you and how we steward not only our possessions, but our time. And Father, you know the challenge this is. You know the, the multitude of distractions and things vying for our attention. And so we just ask that you would give us grace and strength, that we can focus our time and use it wisely for your glory, that we would be more diligent to schedule our time, to spend our day pursuing you and cutting out the distractions of this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.